0: Welcome back to another very special episode of For Fintech's Sake with me, your host, Zach Anderson-Pettit. Before we get into today's episode, one very quick housekeeping item. If you're a fan of the show and listen regularly and want new episodes in your inbox as soon as they're released, go to forfintechsake.com and sign up. Very straightforward and then you'll get every single episode in your inbox with a little bit of a preamble from me. All right, now on to the important stuff. My guest today is Greg Ott, CEO at NAV. NAV connects small businesses to the financial products they need when they need them. In this episode, we dig into Greg's background in CPG, and technology marketing, and not to mention how he's worked his way from CMO to CEO at NAV. And of course, as one must with any small business oriented conversation, we dig into the wild west that is PPP. How NAV is helping small businesses make sense of it all and get funded fast. And for the second week running, ignore our Chiefs reference yet again. I clearly did a wonderful job of jinxing the Chiefs through this week when I was doing these interviews. So apologies, Chiefs fans. Without further ado, though, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Greg Ott. Greg, welcome to For Fintech's Sake, my friend. It's good to have you here. Good to be here. Thanks, Zach. How you doing today? Where Where are you calling from? Let's start with that. In the age of uh, In the age of the insanity of COVID, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm down in the Bay Area, in uh, Tom Brady's hometown, San Mateo, California. Well, it's going to be an interesting weekend for uh, for the fateful man here in two weeks. He's got some uh, He's got some competition from my hometown that uh, I don't know if he's going to be able to oh, overcome. Right? Yeah, you got some talent there. But I tell you, for 43, he's He's still getting the ball down the field. Like, like I was, I, I would not have expected. He's a, he's an inspiration to 40 something year old men everywhere. Right. Like exactly. <laughs> makes me think I should drop down and do push push-up between meetings. Well, if you're not already, I, I'm sure that over the next two, two weeks, you will be. Uh, <laughs> so speaking kind of, of Tom Brady and speaking kind of of the classically trained quarterback I was not expecting to use this as the entree into telling the Greg story, but it actually kind of works. So you Mm -hmm. come from a background that is very, from my perspective, non-average in this world, going all the way back to your days of CPG goods, things along those lines. Also CPG goods, I guess is redundant, but anyways, Mm -hmm. um, tell, tell me the Greg story, give our listeners a sense of kind of where you came from and some of the, some of the education that you got through some of your previous lives.
1: Yeah, so I, you know, I guess I'm, I'm a I'm a Midwestern kid at kid at heart who's kind of like get kind over of like oh my gosh it's this big this big world but I've always been really kind of analytical on one hand um, and really like to solve problems. I actually did my undergrad in engineering, but I've also really been, always been fascinated by um, what what motivates people to do what they do mm. and a little bit of. Yeah, it's not really more psychology, sociology, just like what, what human behavior. And um, I was fortunate to get uh, get a start at Procter and Gamble, and uh, really brought a lot of those two things together. I was the uh, brand manager on Bounty paper towels and uh, Nazima uh, and these products. But what you started what I started to learn was how you know uh, you know both running a business, and I, and I still apply a lot of the structure. Back from those those package good days, there was a model called uh, Objectives Goals Strategies Measures, which was uh, OGSM. Which literally this week I have my team working on OGSM frameworks to to do annual planning. Um, and so a lot of a lot of really good lessons there on you know running and operating a business and using the data to make decisions. But also kind of gave me a personal passion for um, solving real people's problems. And, you know, really listening to the customer um, is essentially the power of the focus group, but it really is just sort really of the power of understanding the customer insights. Um, you know, not just what they say, but, you know, how do you intersect those things and, 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 and predict where they're going to go? Um, so that was a great start uh, for me uh, from a career standpoint. But then the internet was happening and I want to be a part of it. Uh, it really aligned to, you know, that analytical side of you have all this data you can use to run a company online, you can actually—you don't have to guess at what people are doing in, in a physical store. You can actually see and track that with data and look at uh, click streams and sources of customer acquisition and exit rates. And that was that was totally my jam. Um, and so I got to dive into uh, the the internet world. Um, I did a couple of early stage startups. Um, one that was uh, went public it's called Zoom international money transfer. And I think it kind of wet my appetite to be truly entrepreneurial um, and what we could do. And so I'm able to kind of follow a little bit of a path of going to larger companies as an innovator and a change agent, and then stepping into smaller companies and really creating something and innovating uh, into more, more blue um, ocean kind of space.
0: So I'm fascinated, especially by even like the, the first part of that story and the power of the focus group. I, I've never had the chance of to be on the other side of that two-way glass. I'm curious if, if there's things that you learned in that time of working with focus groups and kind of doing the classical version of customer discovery that you've brought forward with you, like the learning empathy, learning, I don't know what a set of questions, but is, was there anything from that time that you've kind of brought forward through your whole career?
1: Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I mean, really it is like, Empathy isn't easy. You've got to work at it. You got to listen and and intersect a lot of data. Um, sometimes I, you know, the the power of the focus groups to be able to stitch it together. You got to stitch together, you know, what really is triggering an emotional response, right? And, you know, people will talk about 90% of the decisions we make are emotional decisions versus Mm -hmm. rational decisions. And so if you're really going to grow a business or a company, um, you know, that, and I think that's where things start to separate between kind of enterprise sales where you're selling to a corporation and selling to a committee versus anything where you're trying to um, create a a product or a service for individuals. And really understanding the combination of emotional and rational decision-making they're going to go through. Um, And the power of the folks should be able to connect that then to like, okay, maybe that's why the exit rate on this page is higher than on that page. And that's what I mean, you kind of got to stitch together what you're hearing, what the customers are saying, um, with with what you're seeing in your, in your actual business, you know, and nowadays you don't actually have to do the focus group behind the mirror in the room, right? It's just, you know the, the the survey tools, the online sessions. We use a product called Fulls called Full Story, where you can actually yeah. record people using uh, your stuff. So it's the same
0: concept, it's just done more digitally full story is a hilarious thing to me because i used to work with it back in the day at one of my previous companies and i would always go and check the rage clicks like anybody that was just <laughs> yeah, rage exactly. clicking on something i was like oh there's there's an issue here someone's yeah. angry it's interesting that's, a, that's the same equivalent right That's yeah. a, you know that's the
1: online analogy to somebody you know getting uh, angry in store when they're going down the you know aisle looking for your product or you know off on the showroom or looking at your cars and just say why did they storm away. Oh right?
0: yeah. But now you can actually see it. Yeah. That's back in the day at the PNG stuff, even today kind of watching full story and talking to users, do you get a lot of, and did you get a lot of kind of, I would like a faster horse and then you'd have to figure out, Oh, actually they want a car. Like, do you still run into that a lot? absolutely you no know, i think everybody wants
1: wants what they have just to work better right? and it's the same way no one was really asking for a phone on their camera mm-hmm. uh, but that that's when you have to stitch things together and sort of say what's the what's the the step change in innovation here um but most people they what's really fascinating is people tend to have um kind of their their system or their ruts especially you now focuses on small businesses and they're absolutely creatures of habit they will they will take they will repeat an inefficient process just because they know it works Um, and so then they they want that inefficient process just to be a little more efficient versus a step change to a totally new process or new solution or adopting a new new app and so i think a lot of you know when you're especially when you're building a startup or a new technology you, you know what it takes to have people adopt Change behaviors is a is a big step change, and that goes to people. You know that the people will say, "I'm not sure I want a car. I just want my horse to go a little bit faster." And it takes a while for them to adopt something completely new. But I think right now we're seeing a lot of, I would say, you know, um, habit disruption Mm. driven by the the pandemic and the crisis, where literally that old sequence of I go to the bank on Thursday afternoons and I do this and I do that. It takes a couple of hours, but it's my routine. And they can't do that anymore. And so now you're getting real behavior change that is being forced. People are being forced off of their horses. And into cars, whether they want to want to be or not.
0: Yeah. And I mean, it's kind of, you know, with nav and we'll get deep into nav here in a little bit, folks, I promise. But uh, Greg is a fascinating enough human that I want to spend some time on him. And it's interesting listening to you talk because it's like you're sitting on you're sitting in the middle of a marketplace that is stuck in habit on both sides. Right. Like the small business owner is one thing they do the, They do this because they've done this forever, but also banks maybe are the exact same in a lot of ways.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, th- I think it's going to be harder for the financial institutions yeah. and the banks to, to get off their horse and into their car. Uh, in some, some, I think they're, you know, what we're observing is the most of them are going to resist, uh, as much as they can, which leaves the, the door open for innovation. I think that's how, um, disruptors come into play. But we're sitting there and we're, we're seeing it on both sides and we're kind of seeing it, it does take both sides to really change an ecosystem. Um, but it's definitely happening on the on the on the borrower side of the small business owner side. And part of that is really driven, you know, and it goes back to like, what's what's the, the emotion? Period, what's the passion? And there are there were more new business starts in Q4 than in any other quarter before record really there's a passion around entrepreneurship. there's a, um, you know, kind of a passion around you know I call it self employment but a passion around you know like i've got an idea i want to see my idea through and, and the barriers to doing that have you know are there's still something there's still funny but they're they're dropping right what it used to take to do that so that that allows side gigs and, and other things to, to to happen but just that surge in on the on the, on the consumer side of the small business side that's going to demand change from the, the banks and the financial institutions for sure.
0: So before, before we get too far into the FinTech side of things, I want to touch on like one or two more pieces of your background. Um, one, I just love this story and probably like the most risque portion of Greg's history. You're a murderer. You killed Jeeves. Can we tell that it story? Did.
1: Yeah, it was funny. Um, so I, um, it was uh, after I jumped into uh, the tech world. I was uh, had a global marketing for Ask Jeeves, and we had a I mean, this was you know early days of search engines, and there were still three or four there. And we had the you know we were we used to say at at our company that ninety five percent of people wouldn't want to go up against Google, and we were the other five percent. <laughs> yeah, and you know one of the things we realized is so I was you know when I looked at kind of the brand the positioning is. Is Jeeves always made it seem like a a search engine with training wheels, and and that was really how it started. Which was Jeeves was your your help, right? And that allowed you to do natural language questions to the internet. Which was we would do these side by side comparisons. And if you were you know, searching on something like you know I don't know uh, back then you know Tom Brady was playing, so he was like, you say know, you know Tom Brady stats. That's what somebody would put into Google. And then into Ask Jeeves, people would say, can you please tell me what the stats for Tom Brady are? And so that longer query made it really much more difficult to provide good search results. So the thing that made Ask Jeeves unique and good was also the thing that made it really hard to be a great search experience. So we tried to become more of an everyday search engine. And part of that was we had to retire the butler. It's so we actually encased him in carbonite just like Han Solo, just in case.
0: <laughs> in case and you had to bring we, him back at a later date. Yeah, so that was how we technically
1: murdered Jeeves, but we really didn't murder him, so to speak. We more retired him and, and encased him in carbonite. And gotcha. Whole, like, Star Wars themed celebration was a lot of
0: fun. I gotcha. Okay, so so somewhere he's like driving around the universe in the Mandalorian ship, and if, <laughs> exactly. we, if we have he to bring him up. back, he could exactly. show up at any point. Season three yeah. of The Mandalorian actually That's has Jeeves easy. popping out of carbonite. Okay. <laughs> This is all making more sense as we go along, Greg. It's all making more sense. Yeah. Um, so from there, you went on to classmates and then demand base, and then you started getting into the world of what I would call fintech. Get into it, and then kind of from there, it seems like you've leaned all the way in. One of the questions that I have about your background, because it is so so unique, you've just you've been a leader across a number of different industries. What? What are the consistencies in your leadership style? What are the consistencies in the way you think about building teams or culture or, you know, pick the buzzword of the day? How do you think about all of that? Because it seems like you've been able to apply the, the same mental models across multiple industries and have some success.
1: Yeah, I mean, as, as a leader, I think one of the keys is you're, you're always learning. Um, and so my model of leadership definitely has changed and evolved. Um, you know, I kind of liken it to you know, being Steve Kerr, a basketball coach. You know, back you know when I when I when I played basketball, my my coach was an ex military guy who would literally crack a whip. And you know, your coaching style has kind of changed a little bit to be more a player's coach. So things have evolved. But I do, you know, I have kind of you know when I think of leadership principles, I start with you know these four, which really you know as the leader. Your job is to create shared vision, mm. and you know help everybody around you in your company and even outside your company understand understand your why. Why are you trying to do this? Not the what or the how. And I think sometimes leaders skip to the the what and the how in terms of what they want. But creating shared vision is about enrolling people into the why, and then organizationally, creating a culture of of trust uh, is is really important. And, and sometimes that's both knowing, knowing people you know, personally, but understanding them, realizing that not everyone is going to think and respond to the same situations as you. And, and, and so, as a leader, you've got to bring that trusted connection together. Um, and then I focus on transparency. How do you have candid conversations? Um, and a lot of companies, I think, hold themselves back because they, they can't talk about their most pressing issues or the, where, where their sources of conflict are. In any company, your growth is about. Um, resolving your own organizational inefficiencies. Growth is really going to be about resolving conflict. Sometimes, it, not like conflict because people are angry, but you've got continued initiatives. You've yeah. got three priorities. You've got, you know, five pounds of sausage in a one-pound box. That's that's conflict. And you've got to be able to talk about that, which then, if you can have trust and transparency, then ultimately, it leads to empowerment. The only way for a company to really uh, do more is to have a really empowered organization. And so I kind of I do shared vision, trust, transparency, and empowerment. And the empowerment is, goes back to helping people in that shared vision. Also, as a leader, I think you can get, you get, um, more comfortable with, you know, uh, you know, perfection is the, is the enemy of execution and getting comfortable with like, look, you, you got to set that mission. It's never going to be exactly on the track, exactly when you want it, but you got to understand what does progress look like? And that's where those pieces come into play.
0: How has that changed or ebbed or flowed since COVID? Right, I mean, I think getting everybody in one room in one office like gives you an ability to create that rallying cry in a way that maybe you know getting everybody together on a Zoom room doesn't quite do the same. How has how has that changed?
1: Yeah, it's it's been um, it's been it's been tough. It's been a shift, but that was definitely a you know, part of this company. Now, what attracted me to a smaller company was to build culture from the ground up and really build that connective teach uh, tissue. so, you know, like a lot, you know, we were, we were very kind of engaged, open, collaborative company. We had celebrations and lunches and, you know, all these events and then COVID happens and all that gets, gets wiped out. So we've had to be really deliberate. In fact, you know, two seconds before I jumped on this with you, I, we do a, a Wednesday standup with a leadership team. And so a lot of us trying to create, <clears throat> create connection communication and then creating ceremony. Hmm. Uh, and then a little bit of surprising light. So connection communication is, stand-ups and town halls and, and using that, which no one really wants more time. But, uh, um, you know, these creating events and celebrations is definitely part of what we do, where we try and have uh, a little bit of, um, you know, uh, every time, you know product launches, new features, results, really making them celebratory, even though that celebration is separate. So we're having that shared experience. And then we do things like, we kind of call it surprise and delight, or um, like we'll send, uh lasagna's to everybody's house at home. Uh we just did that uh last Friday. Um you know to the celebration we hit our our Q, we exceeded our Q4 targets and so everybody in the company got a here all Oh, I love it. And so you just try there's there's smaller things but you're trying to create community, you're trying to create connection in in covid, uh try to be a little creative in the way we celebrate things. Um, and, you know, if, if we have a late meeting, everybody gets DoorDash gift cards, buy yourself some dinner, um, it, things like that to try and create that. But it is deliberate. You have to, everybody has to want to create connection or it, it doesn't work. It's just so easy for people to, to turn their camera off on Zoom and do something else and, and be disengaged. And so it's really hard to, to to keep that momentum up when you're trying to build that collaborative culture.
0: Yeah, it does seem like it would take obsession. If I was if I was leading a larger organization right now, I feel like I'd spend a good portion of my time just wanting to like reach through Zoom and shake people and just like yeah. turn on your camera, pay attention to this conversation. It matters. Well, that like What's what's? I'm not I'm not really a, a, a funny guy. I like to think I am. <laughs> yeah,
1: you're hilarious. <laughs> right? sh- Come on, shaking people. I've got a whole whole box of dad jokes <laughs> that I throw out. Which, but you're just trying to you're trying to create. Some kind of like, you know, um, a, a little like energy in the day, a little disruption, uh, trying to make things not monotonous. But you're right. It takes a lot of that's where I spend a lot of my time you're trying to shake people, wake them up. You're trying to keep them engaged. You're trying to get them to engage with others. We kicked off a chess club, play like online chess. Like, how do you how do you get people working together and uh, realize it's not just getting your work done and then going back, especially because there's nowhere to go. It's not like you get your work done and leave your office, right? you
0: walk, you walk to the other room. Yeah. So yeah. did like too many people watch Queen's Gambit and then you ordered a whole bunch of chess <laughs> that's sets? That's pretty much it. It yeah, was absolutely, absolutely that. I completely credit Queen's Gambit with, with, with our interest in chess. So that's, really that's funny. All right. Well, don't start watching like Breaking Bad or something. Cause I could manifest <laughs> poorly in your company. Um, okay. So let's get to nav. I could talk to you about like leadership and the world of culture and COVID and everything else forever, but well, let's get to nav. Um, let's start with Founding thesis, right? You didn't necessarily start as the CEO. So I'd love to hear like kind of how you got involved, what the goal of the company was in the earlier days, and just kind of what's happened since then. I mean, you've gone through quite a growth trajectory, $99 million raised, at least publicly that I know. Um, so yeah, tell us tell us the nav story a little bit. The founders actually
1: worked kind of in a loan brokerage structure, and they just realized that you know they could only serve 20% of the the people that they were trying to help and that with a little bit of work and education so many more people could qualify for the capital they needed for a loan and say well that's you don't need to pay a big service fee for that let's just give people education to help them understand what's going to drive their qualifications before they apply and that was a little bit of a basic okay great so how does that turn into a product and experience mm-hmm. and um, the Series A was led by Kleiner Perkins, um, and I knew some of the investors there while I was at Intuit. Uh, I was running global marketing for QuickBooks, and you know, I, I separately had a little bit of what I was telling you earlier. I, I, was, I was what really got me excited is companies where you're, you're using data to inform decisions across the board. Where I can think about your your ability, your company's ability to manage data and insights is like the blood running through the organism. Um, and if you can tie that into a, a very customized, personalized user experience, you can create this massive efficiency. In other words, you you can you can serve you know two million people with two million experiences as opposed to one experience. And those were all lessons I had learned. I was experiencing at the time, and you know, but, but you know, and into it, data was in silos, didn't match up. Everybody had their own source, but. You know, so many customers were saying this isn't this isn't what I what I needed, and so that ability to come back to to your point of focus groups and say, oh, we can build something that really helps people." So I got excited about the intersection of a business that had discontinuous growth, um, you know, creating this this data driven organizational culture, and then actually saying, "Hey, when my company wins, my customer wins," and creating that alignment between um, and really solving for customers. So I as I came in that I really helped shape the, the product vision, the go-to-market strategy, and how we're starting to build this technology. So NAV is, is really a, a platform that helps connect demand to supply. And the demand tends to come from small businesses looking for capital. And the supply can come from a, a, a huge number of different uh, financial institutions or lenders or credit card issuers. But what makes it really different is we use the data about the customer's business to help them understand what they qualify for before they apply and what they could do differently to qualify for more. And so in that respect, that, that the product experience is much more of a, almost a robo-advisor or you know, kind of online business advisor that's focused on, on, on helping that small business owner feel empowered and to be in control of, of what they can get for their companies. Uh, it's a win also then for the suppliers for the banks and the lenders and the credit card issuers because we're essentially there's a technical term pre-qualified but we're essentially filtering out people who are unqualified and that's where a lot of underwriting costs get expensive you know uh, and and companies have have bad brand experiences because you get if they get a lot of unqualified applicants it, it slows them down and so we help the lenders by helping them get, let, let us help you get the people who are actually qualified for the products or services you're offering. So it, it's about creating efficiency in an, in an inefficient ecosystem. And through that uh, kind of, it's a, it's a win, 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 win for the borrower, a win for the lender. And then Nav makes money when uh, the lender gets into customer.
0: Yeah. So expand on that just a little bit more, because I think the, the incentive alignment piece is one of the things that fascinates me the most. It's not it's not you know there's there's a number of businesses out there that can make some money by sending a lead to a financial services company right it's i right. saw that whatever credit karma maybe is like a gigantic company example they're not necessarily making money when i succeed they're making money when i click a button right mm-hmm. and to expand on that so how, how what happens to get you all paid like somebody is actually receiving a loan right or, or whatever that product is loan not just credit a loan. Card. yeah yeah and then and, and we also
1: we're, we're moving into it's no secret we're moving into on the supply side we can move into other categories i any comparisons to amazoners it's kind of a joke but <laughs> but we all no, do it we, we all do it right <laughs> but you know loans are our books you know we're you know loans and credit cards is like a selling books yep. and cds and the ability to connect demand to supply across a wide range of categories is really where the opportunity goes. But to your point, the difference is we can actually um, not only use the data to align qualifications, but we can use the data to predict needs. And so sometimes we can actually help the card issuers or the find customers they weren't other they wouldn't have otherwise found. And it's all because we're proactively giving the customers this view into what their financial health and then what their options are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then Really, than just giving that that streamlined transactions to get it, and that versus just to your point, throwing them over the wall as just as just a lead and they're, they're back to square one. We really try to integrate with the uh, financial service providers so that it is a more streamlined experience coming through now than if you just went and started at square one. Um, and and that becomes a um, uh, reciprocal benefit back to the borrower is we stay connected into their business financial data. So we're always helping them. We're always helping them see how their business is doing, what to watch out for. The content and newsletters that we send are all targeted based upon size, industry, stage of life of, of that of that small business. Um, and that then allows them to, to realize, I didn't even realize I had an opportunity because my, cre- my credit profile is improved or my cash flow is up or my cash flow is down. I got to watch out for things. All of that is done by data-driven triggers in the product.
0: One of the things that's interesting to me about that is the, I know some of that data is just kind of evergreen. You know, you have access to view, read only of account statements, things like that. But it also seems like because of the calculators that you all have built and some of the other kind of Trojan horsey, almost uh, content marketing machines that they are Users are actually giving you more data than they would normally give you because they want the right answer, right? So you've built this uh-huh. trust so that they're going to give you information they wouldn't give to Bank of America because Bank of America never asked and they probably don't really care. But how does that make a difference in your business? You're
1: you're uh, exactly. So we think about, you kind of think about here's the product experience and here's the distribution channels, right? And so uh, the product experience, so much of it is uh, the, the value exchange has always got to be improving. And we call it a, a give to get to give, right? We're going to, we're going to give you free access to uh, viewing your financial health. And there's tools out there that you can pay for, or you can pay for an account. We're going to do it all for free mm-hmm. in order to get you to give us continued access to your financial information and to trust us with your financial information so that we can give you the most streamlined transaction experience when you're ready to go. And that's where I think other uh, personal financial management, PFM solutions. Some of them have been wildly successful in terms of adoption, but if they didn't actually solve the pain, like Mint was one of our, our sister brands at, at Intuit. And I love that as an application, right? But Mint basically said, "Oh, you're spending too much. There's no solution. And so right. Nav, <laughs> dot, wanna, dot, dot. Be, <laughs> dot, 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 exactly. And so we wanted to uh, always be able to connect a um, you know that business health that situation into actual solutions that you can you can click on right there. And so that's that that give to get to give. That's why we say we got to give twice to get them to to continue to give us permissible use of their financial data. And I think the the value uh, exchange is is going really really well with our customers. Um, We tend to focus on um we want to get to that customer to use us a second time as you get back to leadership and operating the company. Trying to find some of those north star metrics, mm. and ours is, is really about giving such a great um, transaction experience, such a great financial experience that that same customer will use us for um, a second loan or a, a cre- second credit card or another financial product or service, and, and that really helps build that experience. So it actually does pay off the fact that they gave us access to data. We've got to we've got to be so good with what we provide with that that they're going to continue to come back and use us.
0: Yeah. I mean, it seems like the, the content piece would drive the cost of acquisition incredibly low based on the way that you guys do it. Has that always been a part of the DNA at NAV? Is that something that's kind of become more recent? Like when did you decide that, that you were going to be a content marketing machine that happens to function in financial services? You know?
1: Yeah. So that's why when you're talking calculators, that's part of what I think of distribution right? or distribution or go to market. Um, I think that's kind of the the old old marker of me realizing that that truly is competitive advantage, which is to create and, and really attract customers, attract traffic, right? And that means being a, a content marketing engine, but it also means it's got to be good content, it's got to be relevant, um, and then there's a whole stack around organizing it the right way and being Google friendly, and that oh, it's very technical. So you're really combining, you know, a lot of companies struggle with. I've got an editorial team that can write good articles, but they don't actually. They aren't built into a, uh, your, um, your. They're not optimized for SEO, or that it's different articles over here than you're sending in your newsletter. And so there's a lot of um, orchestration that goes to having you know, your content as as the acquisition channel. You know, Nerd Wallet has kind of pushed that envelope in um, in personal financial services. But to your point earlier. It's a place where the banks just don't do anything. There yeah. is no leading with, I'm going to lead by giving you something. That's why I say give to get to give, right? We always want to lead by giving first. Um, and, and that's kind of pulls you down the path of content, of calculators, of listening to the customers and saying, okay, what else, what else would you like to do? What, what other questions do you have? Um, and then try and say, okay, how do we build that into what we give in order to attract a broader audience?
0: Yeah. It seems like for every uh, every nerd wallet on the consumer side and every nav on the business side, there's like 7,000 institutions that are trying to do quote unquote content marketing, but it's actually just, you know, 500 word advertisements for their own company. It's mm-hmm. like, you're not giving anything. You're just trying to pull me yeah. in, like do this Those in the right good.
1: place. Those listicles, right? When you see five tips you should be thinking about right now.
0: Yeah. Our checking account, our loan, our this, our that. It's like, oh, interesting. They're all your products. I wonder how this happened. Well, and that's the interesting thing about you start to say a
1: role as kind of an intermediary. Yeah. Right. We can be objective on that versus always just saying I have to advocate for one product or another. And that also is an advantage in terms of creating that, that customer trust and that value exchange. Um, is that it's not just saying, you know, you go through it and it's like, Oh, it's a chase card. You know, mm-hmm. okay, got it. Right. Um, and, and that's, a, that's a, uh, a really important aspect. When we look at it in terms of that content engine, part of it is obviously we want to be Google friendly, but part of it, we, I tell our team are, we want to be so um, trusted as a content that people come to us instead of going to Google. Mm. And we look at financial services for the small business, particularly, Google is where they go when they don't know where to go. Right. And then they get stuck with all that crap, right? And they go down there and they can get like, usually they throw up their hands at some point or they end up predatory. So I tell our team our number one competitor is Google because Google is where they go when they don't know where to go. So NAB needs to be the brand and have the content and have the information and then target it based on predictive needs, based on their data and the type of business so that we're actually they go, Wow, that was really relevant. Or naturally, Nav's going to have what I need, and that's that's you know we're, we're early stage, but we've got you know over well over a million monthly visitors and and, and growing really nicely uh, in terms of able to uh, get that get that experience out there and help these people save them from having to go to Google.
0: So the the trust that's being built between the business owner and Nav seems incredibly straightforward, right? The business owner is if they try and go get this loan as like one example from their banker, the answer, especially in the midst of everything we've seen over the last year is going to be, okay, great. You know, let's go down the road of an, you know, a rectal exam financially to find out what's, what's happened in the past 36 months, 12 months, you know, when did you go to the bathroom last all of these different things? And then they don't get any actual, you know, lending um, from that bank. And then they come to NAV, NAV gives them some actual, you know, helpful advice, but what's next? How do you actually facilitate that loan? Like, are there, there's partners on the back end? You're not necessarily a lender yourself, correct?
1: Right. We are not a lender, right? Again, we're that, intermediary between demand and supply. Um, uh, people don't like that sometimes I use we're the we're the cream filling in the Oreo cookie. <laughs> <That's>,
0: <laughs> the borrowers are one yeah, cookie,
1: the lenders the other cookie. We're the cream filling. We use data to connect the two. That's good. Um, and and so the biggest thing is you're exactly right that the borrowers, they're they've been um, they're really in the dark on what what they should do, where they should go. The stats are 80% of small businesses that apply for loans at banks get turned down. And the process is a pain in the ass, right? So they can go to Google and they're going to hit up by you know a dozen you know other random lenders. But how do they know what's a good decision? And so that's where now comes in is that intermediate in the middle, which is we can show them what they qualify before they apply. In fact, this is where on a in a, in a small business world in particular, it the the um, uh, it's just not equally weighted to the to the borrower. You typically you don't know what you qualify for until you take all that time and fill up that application, and then they come back and say, you know, approved, denied, or this expensive. On the consumer side, you kind of know, right, because you you because it's very straightforward based, generally speaking, on on one credit score, and you kind of know if you're going to get approved or denied. Yeah. On the small business side, it's it's much more um, obscure to the borrower. They don't know what it is, and so what Nav tries to do is create that transparency and say, okay based on your actual business data, here's the options you're gonna have. Here's the t- different types of, of products and services. Most uh, most small businesses don't know, you know the term loans versus lines of credit versus factoring versus what is an MCA? Is that something bad? Is that something good? And so we can create all that transparency before they apply. And then to your point, when they're ready to go, then we can actually, we, 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 we only have, we have over 70 different uh, financial product lenders on our, on our platform, but we only put people on there that we're going to work closely with to understand their underwriting box. And then we got of streamline. So if we've already got that data from the borrower, the, the lender doesn't have to reacquire it. And so to really understand even just the basics, sometimes we're like, I'm so tired of typing in my name and address. Yeah. And so we can we can integrate with the borrowers and lenders from with the lenders to pass the borrowers information. All with the borrowers, you know, they you know full transparency and how we're using their data. And, yeah, and full they want the out. help.
0: I'm sure. I mean, it's not like they want, the speed, yeah. they want the easy button. Right, is what they want.
1: It's like, okay, great. You told me I can get this. Great. Can I get it? Like, they want the easy button, and that's where we're. I think fintech starts to move towards right, and that's going back to the earlier point about. Kind of this digital transformation of financial services and this unbundling of financial services is it's moving from an analog world, of literally filling out forms to a digital world where my data is already in the cloud. Everything you need is right there. I should just be able to hit a button, let you have it and have everything be taken care of. And I think we're on a path towards that. Some lenders and financial institutions are further ahead with that, but it is a, it is a, um, it is a disruption to the horse and buggy industry that is 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 gonna continue.
0: So that's that's a it's an interesting analogy in terms of what happens after the loan or after the loan is facilitated, I guess I should say. Right. So you're you got people coming in, they experience the the go with the analogy the tesla that is that is nav right the very yeah. helpful um gives you a lot of prompts you can learn based on what you're doing you can understand i mean s- self-driving even yeah. in its own way um, that's where we're to. That's where we're headed right yeah. we count, we're kind of we're kind of like
1: we, we call it we call it autopilot we're not quite self-driving
0: well you know nobody's willing to make the full self-driving claim at this point due to regulatory um, and legal issues but so it makes sense once the loan is facilitated, at what is the UX like for the borrower after that? Right. So if somebody they get a hundred thousand dollar loan, are they interacting with the nav ecosystem to pay back the loan? Are they going into a new kind of loan system in order to interact with that? Like how how does that UX work on the back end?
1: Sure. Yeah. So right now the loan servicing will all be done by the financial service provider. But what we do is we now we can show them the updated picture of their financial health. Gotcha. Because that, that loan then goes to the bank account now how much cash they have in hand, how are they depleting it? You know, you, you start, okay, now we can predict you've got to make these payments. So we, we update that picture of their financial health. So it's, it's three views, right? Financial health, what you're qualified for, and then streamlining the actual transaction. And so after you get a loan, then you get an updated view of your, your, of your financial health. Um, what becomes really exciting for us is we can, unlike a, um, a lender, a lender can only see what happened to the people that they gave loans to. And so, you know, some say plugged in or they look at, you know, they they have, they re-underwrite their portfolio over time and try and make sure it's there. we can see what happened to the people a lender said no to hmm. if they get it someplace else, because we're up a layer. So we get to see how the financial health of small businesses changes over time and based upon which ones got capital and which ones didn't. And this is where lookalike modeling to help understand and predict financial health of small businesses is is that's how our our, our decision engine gets better at predicting needs. So we get to see you know, who got capital, who didn't, where did they get it, and then how does that change their financial health over time? Mm-hmm. Back to your earlier point, because we stay plugged in, we get to get to show them how that's gonna change. Now that goes back to that value proposition back to the, the borrower a little bit more, you know, kind of back towards mint. And now you're actually saying, okay, great. Here's where my spending is going. Here's how this is working, working for me. And that keeps them, it keeps them around, keeps them sticky so that the next time they need capital, that's a natural place to, to access it
0: and the the average nav user right with 90% of small business owners in the US having what 10 employees or less probably they don't yeah. have a, a cfo on call they probably don't have a you know a, a data visualization layer that they're logging into to understand their finances so this is probably a a huge zero to one step up in their world compared to what they're normally dealing with with paper everywhere or- that's it you're exactly it's the digital business advisor. now a lot of small businesses either have
1: accountants or no accountants but the challenge is that accountants aren't necessarily uh, financial services experts. In, in many right. cases, actually not. <laughs> actually not. Yeah. They're great at accounting. Right. But they get put into this role of business advisor right. and being kind of like the com- they're not the company's CFO if are right. your external accountant. And so yeah, so our target audience tends to be the 99% of businesses that have 20 or less employees. Um, at some point, yeah, if you, have a C- if you have a CFO, you're probably mature enough that a bank's going to uh, service you. But you know, if you're not if you're not that level, banks don't banks are happy to, to charge you to open a checking account. They're not going to give you a lot more in the way of services, and they're definitely not going to give you financial advice.
0: Right. And that's where
1: we can start to trigger that content and that financial advice, all based upon the business's actual financial data.
0: So speaking of that, let's talk about the elephant in the thirteen or fourteen month room now, um, and jump to PPP. What was <laughs> Number one, what was that experience like when PPP first stood up early last year? Like what, I'm guessing you were just drinking from the fire hose, trying to figure out the rules and everything else. What was that like? I know that you helped a lot of people. I forget the numbers, but what were some of those numbers? Kind of how did that round one of PPP go for you all?
1: Yeah, it was um, it was a crazy time because you know, our role is to be out there helping. So we started, you know, we, uh, small businesses were going to come to us for guidance uh, whether we wanted them to or not, so we yeah. <laughs> we were from that. We were on calls with the SBA. Uh, everyone was trying to figure it out. It was very chaotic, but we were the first ones out with a calculator, trying to you know help people understand if they're eligible, what they'd be eligible for, what kind of content we were updating our, our content or FAQs multiple times a day. Wow, um, and were there's you- no one else doing that. Which we actually read the details from the SBA and then try and say, okay, what does this mean to the small business owner?
0: Yeah, Um, were you having to update the logic of the calculator pretty regularly too? I would imagine. Yeah, at least daily. God, absolutely, that's wild.
1: That was the that was the challenge. On one hand, Wave One, uh, and we were on with the SBA and and folks. It was it was well intended in a way. They just they wanted to get money out there. Yeah, and this help us get money to people. That was their intention. Challenge is they leaned heavily on the existing banks and financial institutions and saying you guys do it for us. Yep. And, and that was really important because then they got in the way and all these rules and exceptions, they really wanted it to be simple and straightforward. And then, you know, the, the banks get in the way and try to say, well, we'll administer this. And, and that's what we saw initially in wave one was the banks biased it towards their customers. Why? Because they could.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you're a banker, why would you not? I mean, it's not helpful for society in a lot of ways, but the devil, you know, if it's a, you know, if it's a balance sheet, you know, you'll you lend into it. Exactly.
1: And so, you know, it's the same problem we have. And, and look at it. most small businesses need, when they need access to capital, they need under hundred thousand dollars, more like 10, $20,000 is the average amount they actually need. Yeah, if Banks want to do million dollar loans. Yeah. And so when the SBA said, Hey, banks, will you administer this program? And they started to look at this long tail of small dollar loans. Ah, I'm not really sure I want to get into that. And then what, up? and so the S so you had this, you know, it was, it was the small businesses that were really the losers on that. And so that first round was absolutely chaos. We, we helped over 76,000 small businesses start applications. Um, and then, you know, when we sat across a network of lenders and try to help them find the right lenders. At some point, you know, it was daily called with lenders to say, how many new applications can you take today? Man. And they'll say, I, they'll say, I can't take more than a thousand. So, okay, great. How many can you take? And we were that, essentially that point guard distributing the ball where, where,
0: where it went to. And so, Yeah, it sounds like 80s Wall Street of like, I got I got, a, I got 180 calls. I got 180 calls. You're just on the phone. Like you got fo- one phone on each ear, like you're doing was open because- outcry trading. Yeah, and because the, and the lenders were like, I can't take any more.
1: Like we don't know what we're doing. And, and they were just, don't, don't dump any more on us. Cause that was the worst thing for the small businesses is they think they're applying with a lender and they heard nothing. Yeah. and that was so
0: frustrating. Yeah. Um, well, to so your we, point, we tried- the, the, the dollar amount is one thing, right? If you need 10 K, if you need 20 K, the, the dollar amount is one thing. It's the speed of the money getting in the account. Right. And I know that's another kind of competitive advantage you guys talk about, but my mom and you and I talked about this previously, but my mom's a small business owner that through the first round of PPP would call me every day and basically say like, who, who do I talk to and how much do I ask for? And I was able to, you know, make calls to community bankers that were able to help. But had I not had community banker relationships, had she not like, she'd still be out in the snow, you know, she'd have nothing. And it's so confusing.
1: Exactly. You were doing that exact same thing was who has, who is, who can take some who has supply that I can I can take some demand. Right. And, and and unfortunately that's the way a lot of you know I mean, in the local economies of uh financial services, a lot of it was a, about direct relationships and human relationships. That's what I mean the analog world. Right. And you know, that's you know, to take it direction, that was you know the, the way that the you know, the local small town general store kind of work and you walked in and you knew so-and-so liked Lima beans. So I stocked them for them. And then wall street or Walmart comes into town. And at some point people are like, wow, this is just, this is just more convenient. Yeah. And then Amazon comes and they say, this is even more convenient mm-hmm. and I can get what I need and I can see my options and I'm not constrained. And so we, financial sort of still falls back to that analog world of like the uh, Mayberry kind of, yeah. you know, who you know, and that's not fair to small businesses because that that leaves a lot of small businesses um, underserved, and I think you start to hear that now. 2020 was definitely a year where you, you start to hear more about who you know underserved and um, and and how do we start to accommodate these people who are excluded from mainstream finance access to, to financial services, uh, which led to kind of round two and how that's going. It is um I, I actually I'm almost shocked at how disappointed I am. Oh man, really? The SBA had all this time to update this e trans system and streamline these processes. They did we did they did 5.2 million loans in round
0: one. Yeah. So they should
1: be they had six months to start solving this. And I appreciate the way they tried to open it up gradually and make sure people felt they had that access didn't go to the big guys first, but over this past week, every lender is complaining about the SBA. Uh.
0: They're long
1: jammed. Um, the, the rules once again are getting updated nearly daily, um, and eligibility for this. And did you take a first draw? Well, now how they the people who took a first draw, there's no reason. they The, the point is to enable a second draw to help those, um, but the SBA, it, there's a lot of confusion on how to clarify who had a first draw and how do you make sure you tra- track what their first draw was and how does that affect their eligibility for a second draw. Um, and so they, they're kind of messing it up again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, it's the small business owners that have been hanging by a thread. This program should have been launched months ago and it should have been way more efficient. Yeah. Um, and now it's it's launched and now it's everything. You've got all these applications that are in the stage called waiting for e tran and it, it's the SBA logjam. Every lender who's trying to is trying to, to service this is and it's what some lenders opted out and they say we're not going to we're not going to do PPP this time and they refer those customers to other people. Um, and the ones who are are really frustrated with the the how bogged down the system is and, and again how they had all this time to think about the rules. Even knowing that it was clear another stimulus package was going to happen at some point.
0: Yeah, who and knows how big, like, but like I, I haven't heard the word E-Tran for eight, nine months. And I just assumed that they'd been doing some work. You know, I assumed uh, that there was some deep dives and some, some reconstruction of architecture and things like that, but it sounds like maybe not.
1: And so, it, so it's technical architecture and then it's rules and guidelines. Yeah. And they could have been doing a lot more on that. Way advance. And it's like they they waited until it was actually approved and then they started working on rules. yeah and so well, it also um, sounds
0: like the the risk aversion. I mean, it's like a perfect storm, right? It's like if SBA doesn't totally have their shit together, eTran doesn't totally work the way it's supposed to, and then turns out groundbreaking news, bankers are generally risk averse because it's their job to do so. And if you don't give them the green light to go lend, they're not gonna go lend. And it's a perfect storm of uh credit crunch kind of thing.
1: And at some point you get back to the, you know, the original insight you think about your mom at some point, she's like, why bother? This is just, it's too much of a hassle to, to get this capital. Like, and, and that's what's unfortunate because the intent is there. It should be there to help small businesses um, survive the crisis and hang on. um, And it's not going through. I mean, the other core problem with, the PPP program overall is the paycheck protection program. Yeah. It's not the small business protection program. Yeah. And so these rules around eligibility and payroll make it really complicated when it in reality, if you were just trying to help small businesses thrive, you, you wouldn't need to hang it all on payroll. Um, you know, one of the big problems, and this is where with when the government's view of small businesses truly as just um, channels for employment is misguided and unfortunately small businesses are not the same thing as public corporations
0: yeah the 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 fucking irony of it greg is like the citizens united has a saying that you know that corporations are humans but when it comes to small businesses like they are actually humans and a lot of yeah, we could run kyc instead of kyb on a lot of these people but Eh, they're yeah. businesses, you know, like let's, right. let's give all the benefit to the citizens United group, you know, the, the Comcast of the world. Yeah. And so I, you know, I think it
1: it shines at an unfortunate light that both the, you know, most people in the government don't understand that small businesses are humans and that the government has a, an arms distance relationship and they rely on financial institutions and financial institutions don't want to deal with the messy stuff. That's high risk. And so once again, you know, this long tail is 99% of small businesses get kind of underserved by financial institutions. Um, And and that's really too bad because especially when you look at the polarization that happens, you know, one of the contributing factors is is economic opportunity. Yep. And if you look at small business, not as just channels of employment, but if you look at small businesses as creating economic opportunities, especially in... Inner cities, rural areas, all these all these uh, areas, creating that economic opportunity can actually pull together communities. And we have a saying here: is that when small businesses thrive, uh, individuals, communities, and economies thrive. And that's the point. These are these aren't just corporations. These aren't just how do we get more people employed. These are about how do you stimulate economic development in communities, and that's what small businesses can do for us um, if we just take some of the administrative bullshit out
0: of the way yeah i mean there's a reason that we refer to these things these things these businesses as the backbone of the american society right like i i sit in a very unique spot in kansas city where we are a very divided city we have this this street called Troost that has a lot of very uh I'll just say it just racist history. Honestly, if you're east of Troost, which is actually where I grew up, it's kind of the non white side of town. If you're on the west side of Troost, things get more expensive things, you know, house, house values are higher. And small businesses, all of a sudden, like you start to notice through the past 12 months, like everything east of Troost seems to just be getting worse. Some of the very few grocery stores that we did have in food deserts are shutting down because they don't even know where to start with a lot of this stuff. And then on the other side of things, you know, people that maybe don't need their loan forgiven are give, getting a third or fourth or fifth loan and just like the the richer get richer, the have nots have less. It's this disgusting snowball. So I'm glad that I'm glad that you are focused on it. I'm glad that it's a thing that at least this side of the industry is like trying to solve because I think if we just leave it up to, if we leave it up to the incumbents, the powers that be in the government, I mean, we're all candidly a little bit fucked. We absolutely are. I mean, and I, I, I think,
1: you know, the, there's a network of CDFIs, community development institutions and they do great work. They are, that is the yeoman's work. They, they are not set up. To handle what is needed. And, and the reality is, they have to treat each opportunity. It's like a bespoke suit, right? They yeah. To the business, yep. and qualify for this and grants for that. And it's great. And really, we should contribute to help them. But a lot of what those communities need, they need an assembly line of white T shirts, mm-hmm. not lending as bespoke suits. And that's where a real, you know, the, the economic alignment has to be in The for profit companies should be able to make money serving these communities. And I, you know, we believe that that will start to happen if we can create that economic efficiency, creating that transparency for the lender this is as important as creating that transparency for the borrower. Absolutely. But if the lenders just rely only on traditional like credit scores from the bureaus, right? You know, these, that, that side of the street, those people, they don't have good credit scores. Why? Because they're doing everything can they can just to keep the, the doors open in that, in that than that grocery store. Yeah. And so they get caught in this economic downward spiral. Yeah. You think that this is where technology, but it's really, that's really just a data problem. It's really about how do you view the data of that, of that small business, of that grocery store? And how do I make a decision to underwrite them? Now on the small business side, you can price to risk and that's okay. But if you do it in the competitive market, at some point, people will be competing for that, for that customer, for that grocery store. At some point he's gonna he's gonna get the, the the best price on capital he
0: can. And eventually you have you you develop some equality and some equity in society. I remember the first time I sat through a class about uh, lending, specifically small business lending. One of the things that I learned was this idea of reputational risk, right? So it's not just about the credit score, it's not just about, you know, the the past 12 months of financials, but it's like I've known this person from the country club or some bullshit for the past, you know, two years. And because of the knowledge of this person from the country club, I feel more comfortable lending. Like, what are you talking about? That is yeah. what that's the most 1950s thing I've ever heard. And people still function that way today. It's
1: incredible. And that's where, you know, at some point, hopefully now like the fact that no one can go to the country club starts to, yeah, drive yeah. Out, There's a to a silver to lining. <laughs> That, that's the ultimate irony. It's the perfect example of the this people we say that the backbone of our communities get completely left out of this financial system because they're they don't they don't have direct relationships with the people who control these risk decisions. Mm-hmm. Now, if you start to as financial institutions or newer financial services companies make more of these risk decisions based upon other data, alt data, other types of data, they can actually start to serve that. So. The digitization is also in some ways, in some ways the democratization of the access to capital. Absolutely, but it is almost shocking still today, in, you know, 2021, how much of those decisions are based upon
0: I'm familiar with this person. Yeah, white guys shaking hand with another white guy on the golf course, kind of a thing. Um, and that's, how did your mom? How does your mom get we uh, get you
1: know, the small dollar loans? We do a um, it's one of the wonderful things to, going back to the point of customer empathy. Every quarter we do a grant program to help small businesses. And um, the grants are, you know, five to $10,000. And what's amazing is where it might sound like a small dollar amount. This is a game changer.
0: Oh, that's, I mean, she's, she calls me once a day and she's like, she's trying to take her whole business digital right now. Right. So she owns a yoga studio. She's had, she's been running it for 30, 35 years. And I get a daily every other day call of like, should I buy a ring light? I'm like, what my 74 year old mother is asking me if she should buy a ring light for, you know, her, her digital presence. Like, should I buy this camera or this camera? And it's all like four, $500 decisions. Like if she had five to whatever, you know, two to $5,000, she could dramatically shift the way her entire business works. That's not a small yeah. amount of money at all. Right. But to those guys, those white guys in the golf course, that's not really worth their time. Oh, well, yeah, they they bet that on the ninth hole. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> so that's what I
1: mean. Like small businesses need an assembly line of white t-shirts, yeah. not these book suits and they become game changers. Uh, we helped, you know, a guy in a food truck just get a better point of sale system. And he's like, this changes everything. Like I was losing money because I was paying these high fees and all, all these things. And all it takes is, is a a relatively small dollar amount but the financial services industry and this is where i think that alternative lenders and, and this uh, unbundling of financial services and the kind of embedded finance opportunities really start to change that because it's got to be data driven in a different way and it's got to enable the efficiency of even even these relatively speaking, small dollar, you call them small dollar loans. That's not fair to the small business owner because it's a
0: big dollar loan to them. It's all relative, right? It's all relative and absolute numbers, whatever, but it's all, all relative. All right, man. I know we're coming up on time here. You have uh, the small business world to save. So I'm going to let you get back to that. But my last question is, Oh, uh, I guess twofold. One, if you're hiring, if you want folks to kind of, you know, go anywhere and learn more about you, about NAV, where should they do that? And then also the last question is, what can our listeners do to help you? Great.
1: Well, um, NAV.com, the NAV, the name, not surprisingly, is about helping small businesses navigate these difficult funny access to these difficult financial products. Um, so we've got a lot there. We are absolutely hiring with, uh, with the crisis, I think we've, we've really adopted a much more distributed work model. Um, we have offices in, uh, San Mateo, Salt Lake City, and just outside of Philadelphia, but we are hiring kind of in all roles and all levels. Um, and we're opening that up to a much more distributed workforce. Um, so, you kind of know, of our last 10 hires, I think six have not been in one of those three, uh, and those three markets. So, uh, people who are interested both in, what I call creating cool shit. We are essentially, we're intelligent software on top of data. If that's your jam, we would love to talk to you, especially if you get excited about using that to solve the pain points of small businesses. So all that's on nav.com. And you know, the way people can, can help is we're always just trying to, you know, we always want a want customer feedback. Look, how can we make access to capital easier and more efficient? Um, and then, you know, Helping small businesses realize this, this free resources out there is free to the small business owner. That's the whole point. That's what starts to shift the scales more in favor of the small business owner. So, uh, referrals and recommendations to your friends and your, your, your small businesses and your network. really
0: appreciate it. Well, my mom and I are going to be spending some time on NAV later and I will definitely be doing some uh, some live tweeting about the experience. So sure. Greg, thanks for the time, my friend. This has been a blast. I've learned a ton. Um, I love what you're doing at NAV and it seems like maybe we're going to have to do a check-in in six to 12 months and see how PPP uh, to. round two or yeah. three is going.
1: Yeah. And Zach, thanks to you. Love your podcast. You know, I think you're really the, the focus on FinTech. It's going to transform a lot of things for us. And I, I learn a lot listening to your podcast. So Thanks for, uh, uh, for, for doing that, you know, keeping that up upper weight. We appreciate it. I appreciate you, Greg. I appreciate you.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of For Fintech's Sake with Greg Ott. If you want to learn more about Greg and Nav, I put pertinent links and more info in the show notes as usual. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. And if you want our weekly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, y'all, stay healthy, keep your head high, and I'm not a cat.